0: I grew up in the, in the Deep South, had an evangelical megachurch, and if there was any questions that a person had, they just kind of got redirected. So as I got older, like in high school, I started looking for answers outside of the church.
1: I was, um, I was tutoring at an inner-city project in Chicago, and then, then one of the girls said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, you can shut up about that Bible stuff because it doesn't make any sense here and the only reason that you believe in Jesus is because you're white and you're wealthy and you're safe, and your God doesn't come down here and your Jesus doesn't love me. And that really shook me to the core. Like, I wanted to have a faith that was true for every circumstance, in every situation, in every culture.
0: So, as more and more questions evolved, I started to doubt more and more things about the gospel. I thought that perhaps there was someone who, named, who was named Jesus, and he was a Jewish person who was executed by the Roman Empire, and then he died, and then the followers of him just started making up stories about him.
1: At that point, I'd been in love with Ben for a long, long time, and we just tried to take every um, aspect of our faith and like test it and prove it in the real world, but for me at least, what it ended up being was just kind of walking away. From all of it
0: together. To me, faith—it all just seemed like fantasy. So I embraced that kind of nihilistic worldview, and, and I started to do drugs, and I had a lot of suicidal thoughts. And at the end of the day, I told myself, I don't believe in God at all.
2: All right, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 32 is where we're going to be for today. We're starting a new series calling it "Dealing with Doubts." So if you're a person, that regardless of your faith or unbelief, and you have doubts, then you're in the right place today. But we're going to actually start with the Bible, although we're not going to completely resource uh, the Bible today uh, until really the the end of my sermon. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22, we're going to read through verse 32. Let's read these out loud together. So Paul and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for a, a new day. Thank you for this uh, beautiful stretch of weather that we're having in the D.C. area. We thank you for this is the culture that surrounds us and the excitement of the cherry blossoms and just everything happening in, uh, in and around the nation's capital. We are privileged to be uh, here, living here. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church. This is the day that you have made. We rejoice and we're glad in it that you give it, you give us just the opportunity to come without persecution um, to uh, to worship freely, uh, to lift our hands and sing songs uh, as we glorify you, both in our lives but also in our song. And today we uh, embark uh, on a journey to um, to unveil for each of us those uncertainties that we might have about our faith. Perhaps there are those in our midst that would say I don't have any faith. I don't believe anything. In fact, I reject God and I pray uh, Lord of all lords, God of all gods, that you would make yourself known through your word, through uh, the the things that I will say about science and history and uh, about culture and that you would open eyes and uh, have hearts that are receptive to you, and I pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 All right, so we're starting a new series, uh, and we're calling it Dealing with Doubts. Um, and for those of you who have been for, with us for a while, you know, that's uh, really our, our bread and butter, uh, at least in terms of our, this time that we give to uh, sermonizing here amongst our worship is it's mostly going through books of the Bible. Every once in a while, though, we like to take a a different turn and look to the questions that the culture may be asking, or perhaps areas of tension in our own lives. And to to do that, we pick up topics or or things that um, the culture might be suggesting that we should look at. And that really is what we're doing with this series about doubts. And I know my own life, and I know many of you. And here is. Uh, what I would postulate, all of us have doubts. There are areas that we believe, but there's small pockets even amongst um, the, the great things that we know to be true, that we also have doubt, that we are uncertain about what belie- we believe. And so this series really is an attempt to to get at those things, to uncover ways that we may be thinking um, erroneously, and for those of you that are skeptics and that really doubt, uh, to offer an opportunity to start a conversation. More importantly is to to look at ways that uh, our culture doubts religion and the Christian faith. Uh, and the encouragement for all of us would be that we would deal with our doubt, just give us an opportunity to deal with that stuff. Uh, here's an important disclaimer, and this is really important. You ready for it? I'm a pastor. All right, and so the more I get into this, uh, just even this week, um, the more I immerse myself into this topic of of doubt, uh, you know, I'm like over my head. This is this is at best, you know, at, in the least, it's uh, a multi a multidisciplinary field of study. In fact, uh, one of the um, one of the experts that I've been consulting, uh, a apologist by the name of Dr. Uh, Gary Habermas. You could look up look him up on the internet, and you'll see. Just loads of stuff that he's done. He says, you know, doubt is kind of complex. In fact, there's three kinds of doubt. There's factual doubt, a person that just rejects the facts, even if those facts are right there in front of their, front of their face. There's emotional doubt. It's like, I just, you know, I just don't feel like that's right. Or you've had an experience that would preclude you from just receiving whatever uh, might be true. And then there's volitional doubt, someone that just like dogmatically says, you know what? I am not going to believe that no matter what, okay? And for each of those areas requires really a, a different perspective to, to challenge what you may uh, t- may hold to be true. For factual doubt, you kind of need a philosopher, historian, apologist. Uh, for emotional doubt, I mean, that's the realm of psychology and psychiatry, right? And for uh, volitional doubt, that's kind of the, the area of theology, and so... Along with the Bible, we are going to use several outside resources. Let me uh, mention three of those. The first would be uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. Um, You can look him up on the Internet. And just a a wealth of knowledge. He spent his whole life uh, uh, particularly in this topic of doubt. He has a book, an e-book online uh, that's called Dealing with Doubt. Uh, Well worth your time. Um, We actually started this series uh, thinking about Easter and the resurrection. And so here's a book called Raised. Um, finding Jesus by Doubting the, re- uh, the Resurrection by Jonathan Dotson and Brad Watson, two pastors in Acts 29, at least one pastor in Acts 29. Um, this uh, is formative in terms of uh, you know what the resurrection is, uh, how it changes everything, and unpacking those ways that we doubt that it even happened. Um, I've got three of these, in the, including this one, three of these in the back, so if you are a reader, this would be worth your while. Here's the book that I think you should get, though. This is uh, Tim Keller's uh, New York Times bestseller book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. You'll, uh, if you have not read this, Christian or not in the audience, you, uh, I mean, you should read this book. It's informative. Uh, it's written from uh, not a, obviously, Tim Keller's a Christian. He's a pastor, well-known, uh, and it's written from a uh, a Christian worldview, but it's not full of Bible verses. He's just coming at, you know, history and Philosophy and a whole bunch of other disciplines to uh, talk about you know what it means to be a skeptic and what it means to be uh, a person of faith in the world that we live in so this this book this should book uh, should be on your uh, on your your bookshelf I rec- uh, highly recommend that here are two things that I think are world uh, worth us thinking about keys to to getting through this series uh, two attitudes that I think we should all take up. The first is humility, okay? Just setting aside any arrogance in regards to what you think that you know, uh, you know, pride that you might have uh, even in your own thinking and believing. You know, just not give those up, but set them aside just for a little bit. And the other would be investigation. We want all of us, Christian and non, to, <laughs> to put our investigative hats on and examine what we believe and and why. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus uh, you really need to believe, you really need to listen to the objections of, of your friends and perhaps your family members that don't believe like you do, and, and give a few minutes to entertain what they're saying and the, object, the objections that they might have uh, to your faith. Uh, let them articulate to you what they believe and what they don't believe, and don't feel like you have to immediately give them some Christian cliche answer. Because a person that doesn't believe in Jesus, I mean, that's the, that's what they expect. And they immediately become defensive of that. But also, if you're a skeptic in the room, uh, my encouragement would be for you to examine all of your areas of skepticism and be open, if you will, for perhaps some foundational things that you say you believe and don't believe that may be uh, in the end unprovable. In the end, I think our goal for all of us is that we would come away with uh, having a greater degree of humility and a greater degree of clarity uh, in terms of what we actually believe. Here's what I know about the world we live in. It's increasingly pluralist, pluralistic. Okay, You can't go anywhere and have just uh, one mono-religion uh, mono uh, anywhere. There are people who claim that their religion is the exclusive religion on the planet. They hold, you know, the rights to truth. And guess what? People of faith are not going away. Experts tell us that. Religion is not dying. There are also skeptics in the world who say they have no faith, no belief, and don't want any. And they question above all everything Christian. And the experts tell us that uh, secular thought is not going away. Both of those things actually are growing simultaneously at rapid rates. I think it's also safe for us to say that we have to uh, deal with and move past stereotypes. A lot of times, if you're a Christian, your stereotype with someone who's a skeptic is that um, there are people who are angry, they worship Satan, and they want to burn down church buildings. I mean, don't. I mean, we. I mean, we see it in the newspaper, and we believe all of them are like that. But wouldn't you agree that because? She, Perhaps you have some friends or people in your family that are skeptics, and they're just uh, decent people who may doubt what you believe, but they just have questions that they haven't heard the right answer to, at least in their in their mind. If you're a skeptic, all Christians aren't backwards people who wear hats, you know, drink light Budweiser beer, and uh, and are ignorant because they believe something. Those are the stereotypes that we hold on to. Here's our goal, at least my goal for this series, for, for all of us, our church family. Um, to just really encourage a dialogue. Okay, I, my my incoming supposition is that even if you're a strong Christian, you have some doubts, and so let's examine our doubt and know what we believe and why we believe. If you're a Christian, it's going to make you a more articulate um, believer, uh, and if you're a skeptic, perhaps it may help you to uncover some things that you've been believing. Uh, wrongly so this is what we 're going to do in this series each week we 're basically going to ask and respond to a question or or make a statement that the culture is asking about religion in general and Christianity in particular and this first week we 're asking this question: Can there be only one true religion? Can there only be one true religion? Many would say that to make the assertion that there can only be one religion is not only misguided, but it's dangerous. Two of the world's most popular philosophers, uh, Michael Foucault, who comes out of uh, France, and German philosopher Friedrich Nietz- uh, uh, Nietzsche, both say in their own words, claiming to have the truth is nothing more than trying to exercise your power over other people. That's what philosophy would tell us. And they, they, you know, obviously, they're saying exclusive religion is wrong. But it's not just philosophy that says exclusive religion is wrong. If you look at the polling data of some of the, uh, our country's uh, biggest polling firms, uh, Pew Research Center, Barnum Group, Gallup, the uh, consensus poll. When asked what the biggest threat to world peace, many respond with exclusivist religion. That's scary, because we would be people, Christians, would be people who hold to an exclusive religion. Um, What's scary about that is the more popular term is fundamentalism. For those of you old enough to remember, fundamentalism, I mean, just 10, 15 years ago, that was associated with the moral majority. That's old Jerry Falwell and the the religious right. Guess what fundamentalism is associated with now? Terrorism. You You see the equation? Fundamentalism equals terrorism. And so if you hold to an exclusive religion, you're, 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 if you're not a terrorist now, you will be one day. And so the thought is, the concern is to have religions that claim to be supreme. What I believe is true, what you believe is less than truth or a, an incomplete un, truth is either going to lead to war or perhaps even worse than that, just all manner of evil. And so here's the unfortunate thing. History backs that up. Here's some things from history that that tell us that exclusive religion should—I mean is, is suspect. Uh, first century, the Romans created the, the Pantheon. The Pantheon was a temple that was dedicated to all sorts of gods. Okay, the Romans were a pluralistic society, one of the first true pluralistic societies. And the, the policy in Rome was you could worship any god that you wanted, as long as you first were willing to claim Caesar as your primary god. If Caesar is Lord over your life, then you can and subsequently worship any God that you want to worship. And if you feel if you fail to call Caesar Lord, then you're going to be thrown to the lions. That's exclusive religion. Crusades were one of the worst blights on the history of the church. And the crusades were basically a series of military campaigns, and they were of a distinct religious nature, and they were attacking Muslims and uh, pagans, to include the Russian and the Greek Orthodox Church, which were, which were trying to overthrow the beliefs of, of the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church said this, we have the truth, submit or die. And of course they committed all kinds of atrocities in the name of religion uh, during the Crusades. Uh, none of us in this room, because we live in America, are uh, without some knowledge of the transatlantic slave trade and those who justified enslaving uh, Africans and bringing them to the, the Western world in the name of their religion, their exclusive religion. And, of course, many years after slavery was abolished, uh, what happens? We, they, they sanctioned segregation for centuries, all in the name of a few Bible verses that were taken out of context, exclusive religion. Last example would be terrorism, Islamic terrorism. Um, This week in London, we have one of 15 years of experience of uh, exclusive religion uh, being used to terrorize uh, the world, really, and attempt to hold us hostage uh, in an effort to hold themselves up extreme uh, Islamists saying that we have the one true God and everyone else is an infidel. And so uh, just a few examples, major atrocities, terrible evils, all done in the name of exclusive religion. Exclusive religion leads, of course, to one more universal sin. And this is the one that, that touches all of us. It's the universal sin of self-righteousness. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If I hold that what I believe is the real truth, then I'm going to look at everybody else that believes something different as being less or than, and being, you know, in in some cases, a threat to what I believe and my way of life. And so this is gonna sound strange for a pastor to say this, but rightly so, religion is criticized. Definitely exclusive religion that says, I've got the truth. You don't. You're wrong. And then we do something about that. And so, because of this, many have hoped that exclusive religion would lose its power; that it would just disappear. The post Enlightenment movement, which now has turned into postmodernism, has had this thought that scientific understanding and just the uh, uh, you know the rise of technology would make our need for God obsolete, that people would not need God because we got all this stuff taking care of our needs. Guess what? It hadn't worked. Um, Tim Keller in his book, uh, this great book that I mentioned, has has said that there's three primary ways that the the civic government and the culture have tried to eradicate uh, religion. The first is they've tried to outlaw it. Think what China is doing now. It's it's illegal to, to be a religious person in China. They've done that for centuries. Think uh, Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Russia in the early 1900s. He killed 40,000 priests. He had 120,000 nuns and other innocent people killed trying to eradicate religion so that the the, the state would rise in its uh, importance and affluence. Think of Cambodia with the uh, Khmer Rouge, Nazi Germany, and the Jewish Holocaust, although there's nuances there, all have this semblance of I'm, I'm going I'm to try and control these people that have these religious beliefs. And that at really, the, the effort was, I'm going to get rid of these religious people and their beliefs so that we can empower the state. Some want to outlaw it. Some want to condemn it. Those who want to condemn religion make the argument that it's bad for the world. Joseph uh, um, George Carlin, remember him? He died eight years ago. One of the most popular comics in uh, all of America. His number one stand-up routine, religion is BS. You say the word in your head, not out loud, <laughs> right? It's hilariously funny. You can find it on YouTube. But if you listen to it and you're a person of faith, at some point, it starts to offend you because he's saying that we're stupid idiots for believing what we did. And we're trying to, we're trying to usurp, at least clergy, we're trying to usurp those people who can't take care of themselves. Um, Bill Mars. Uh, you know, current politicist, his uh, his movie, 2008 movie, Religious. I haven't seen it, but this is what, what it's about. It says religion is for stupid people that need to evolve. It's socially regressive. So someone to outlaw it, someone to condemn it, someone to prioritize religion. And when you privatize religion, it's basically saying religion is la- allowed, but keep it private. All right. You keep you. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But you keep it on the inside. Don't say it. And definitely don't impose upon me with what you believe. Just keep it to yourself. Here's what history and the experts have told us. Tim Keller says in in this book, the phenomenon is regardless of what society, the civic world and culture has done to stifle religion, it's not happened and it's not going to happen. You can't eradicate faith. In fact, Tim Keller says, the major religions have grown, Christianity and Islam exponentially. Any poll that you look at that asks the question, do you believe in God, are all affirmative in the 90th percentile. You cannot eradicate religion, not in the days that have gone before us, not in our day as well. Keller quotes in this book, virtually all major religions are growing in number of adherents. Christianity, in particular, Christianity's growth, especially in the developing world, has exploded. Listen to these statistics. One out of four Christians, one out of four Christians in the world lives in Africa. In the last century, Christianity grew twice the rate of the population in that continent. Korea, South Korea this would be, has gone from 1% to 40% Christian in the last 100 years. Experts believe that the same thing is happening in China. They estimate that 50 years from now, experts believe there will be no less than half a billion, billion with a b, b, Chinese Christians. He asked this, in most cases, the Christianity that's growing is not the more secularized belief in virgins. Rather, it's a robust, supernaturalist kind of faith with belief in miracles, adherence to scriptural authority, and personal conversion. What's he saying? Religion is not going away. But the other half of that is secularism is not going away. Many of you have people that you know that have never stepped through the doors of a church. Many of you have people that you know that have never opened up the pages of a Bible or read any of its verses. Many of you know uh, that in our culture today, especially in DC, which is, I mean, we are the mirror of the rest of our country, pluralistic and diverse. And there are people that would say, I have no faith. And if I have a faith, it's not the faith that you, that you have. It's, it's a multi, multidisciplinary, mixed-up kind of belief. And one of the reasons why religion or secular thought is going away is simply because, for all of us, our assumptions and beliefs about life inform the rest of our life. And what I mean by that is simply that all of us have a worldview. All of us have this lens that we're looking at the world through. We're looking at everything that is, culture, people, you know, technologies, all the stuff that's happening, and we're forming our view. We're trying to navigate the complexity of the world and trying to make sense of it. And that really is what a worldview is. Here's the thing about worldviews. They're always made up of two things, empirical evidence and unprovable beliefs. So your thoughts about the world that you live in, some of it is is clear. We can see it. It's logical. But the other part is it's like stuff that none of us can prove. You couldn't prove it in a lab even if you wanted to. You believe it by faith. And so that applies to all of us, believers and skeptics alike. And what that means, from from my view, my purview, is that everyone is religious. That's what Paul is doing in this text. Um, Paul is saying... Everyone has beliefs and assumptions about faith. The Areopagus was uh, a first century uh, pluralistic paradise. It's where all the, the smart and intellectual people, philosophers, and people who just wanted to hear thoughts about what was going on that would make them think more. Okay? They came here and they allowed a people who who wanted to orate about these thoughts to come and present themselves. And that's what Paul is doing. He's He's seeing the occasion. He's seeing the setting, and he avails himself to the opportunity to go and talk about God. And he says in verse twenty-two. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, "Men of Athens, I perceive that you in every that in every way you are very religious." Here's what Paul's doing. He's affirming their their spirituality. He's affirming that everyone is religious, even those that would say that they don't. You know, they don't have any faith at all, which begs the question, what is religion? Now, if we would ask the, you know, the culture out there what the religion is, what religion might be, we would get answers like uh, it's it's things that are sacred. It's a uh, it's a man who's got a robe on and, uh, you know, he's like set apart. They might say it's the high ceilings of a cathedral, the stained glass window he's ornate things that you might see, that's kind of what religion is. It's belief in something. That's not necessarily what religion is. Here's what religion is. Religion is a set of answers to the big questions of life, a set of answers that you personally come up with about life, the life that you're living. Why am I here? How are we to orient our time? Is there purpose and meaning for my life? What's right and wrong? All those kinds of questions, the big questions that we're trying to come to some kind of like understanding about, that's what religion is. And so my supposition is no one can go through life without forming answers to these questions. And so if you're over five throughout the rest of your life, I mean, society, your parents, the people that you hang around you're seeing how the world works. You're creating this worldview, a lens by which you're looking through, and you're formulating answers to these questions, answers to the big questions of life. Not only are you forming a worldview, you're forming a, a religion, a personal religion for yourself. And um, you, can't, you can't be a person without forming one of these. Everyone is religious. Everyone has a spiritual, a, a take on their spirituality, which is based on a set of unprovable assumptions, a worldview, which is then based on faith. Let me give you two examples. We're talking in this, this particular sermon about uh, there can, how can there only be one religion. Now, we live in the 21st century. We live in the West. And so, and particularly if you are a person of faith, you call yourself a Christian, I mean, logically, I mean, you're like, you're thinking like, duh, there can't only be one truth, right if if a christian I mean a Christian believes Jesus is God, came from heaven to earth, grew, you know incarnated as a man, died on the cross in our place for our sin. the Bible calls Jesus God in flesh, rose from the dead, and so a Christian believing that about Jesus. And a Muslim believing that no, Jesus is not God, he's a prophet or a teacher, that's two different perspectives about Jesus, right? And so we, we both can't be right. And so if a Christian says Jesus is God, rose, risen from the dead, and a Muslim says, no, he's not, one of us has to be wrong. That's logical. That's logic sense. But, but that's not what everyone believes. The bottom line is we can't all be equally right. To say that there can only be one true true religion is a religious statement. It's it's formed by a worldview. It's formed by my perspective of the, the, the answers to the big questions of life. And it's personal to me. I cannot prove in a lab anywhere that there can only be one true religion. Definitely, if I'm from the East, I live in a world that says there can be multiple faiths. And I definitely don't want to be a Christian, not because I think Christianity is wrong. I don't want to be a Christian because I think everyone in of America is a Christian, and I don't like Americans. I'm, I'm stereotyping, but I mean that's, that's one aspect of this. And so to say that there can only be one true religion is really a faith assumption. It can't be, imp- it can't be proven empirically. And it's not a universal truth that everyone accepts. Here's another example. I can't believe in moral absolutes. This is chapter 3 in Keller's book that's uh, well worth living. This is another hard question with a hard answer. Basically, the argument is that everyone has their perspective of the truth, that I can come to the truth on my own, which would be there's multiple versions of what is true. And some of you sitting here might say, well, that okay, that makes sense you know for me truth is relative to where i am but there's others of you that would say well i've been taught there really is only one truth god is the source of that truth and, and you know it's it's black and white i see it but you can't prove that and so this is what keller does he says the honest way to doubt christianity or any religion is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts, and then ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. And that really is what we're trying to do in this series. We're trying to deal with our doubts. Keller says it like this, we all need to doubt our doubts. Get underneath to uncover what's informing what we believe. And that's why I would give you my supposition. Everyone is religious, because everyone is living to, um, every one of us is living according to unprovable beliefs. What you believe, you believe primarily by faith. God has gifted you with faith, if you're a Christian, to believe what you believe. But also, everyone is exclusive. Everyone has a, a take on spirituality that they think everyone else should adopt. Perhaps you've heard of this illustration. There's three blind men traveling. I don't know how they were traveling. If they're blind, they had no guide. But they happen upon an elephant, and they all come at the elephant from different directions. All right, so one approaches the elephant and he approaches it at the side. He's touching it, you know, feeling it, and the other other uh, blind guy approaches the elephant from his trunk, so he's grabbing it, sort of bending it a little bit, and the other um, approaches the elephant from the tusk, okay, And so they consolidate and they kind of debrief each other, and they're talking about this thing that they've just happened upon. They don't know it's an elephant, all right And so they're saying, well, uh, well, what was it like? Well, it was tall and it was flat. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get around it. And the other was saying, well, no, that, what I encountered was something that was flexible like a snake. I could bend it and contort it different directions. And the other person says, well, no, what I encountered was something that was like a spear. It was firm. It was strong and kind of pointy on the end. You get where I'm going? They all had their perspective of what this creature that they happened upon was and for them, that perspective was the exclusive truth. What does an elephant look like? It's tall and flat. What does it, no, what does an elephant look like? It's, it's sharp like a pier, firm, spear, parent, firm. What does an elephant look like? It's like a snake, flexible. They can't all be right. And so common sense would say, well, that sounds right. If my perspective is that the thing that I've come upon is, is, you know, I can't get over it or around it, and that's what it, that's what it is. But, I mean, that, that's, that's untrue. It's just this is a blind person. OK, so for us um, to ask the question, what, what question am I asking? Um, I don't know what, what question I'm asking, yeah. Exclusive truth, basically you know exclusive religion that I can ha- that I can prove what true what true is uh, to say it 's a matter of perspective is it 's not quite true because the only person that knows what the elephant truly looks like is the person that 's not blind okay and so anybody that says um, your religion doesn 't have a uh, full view of the truth is basically saying. I'm supreme. I'm standing over you. I know what every, you know. I know the complete truth, and no one can do that but God himself. Here's, here's a summary of what I've said. We're going to get to the Bible in a couple seconds. I'm saying we're all religious. Secondly, I'm saying we're all exclusive, which means, in a sense, we're all in the same boat. Um, religion's not going away. Secular is not going away. We all have to live together, and more than that, we all have to be humble enough to listen to each other and try to gain each other's perspective. And that's what Paul does in our text. Somebody you saying, like, oh, my God, is he getting to the Bible? I am. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Again, Paul is affirming their spirituality He's basically seeing the opportunity that these men um, are interested interested in a lot of things, but they're even interested in religious things. And so Paul steps up and says, it it seems that uh, you realize there's more to life than just what you see. And if that's the case, perhaps you would allow me to speak about the God that I know. Uh, Protestant reformer John Calvin said, all truth is God's truth. Okay, So regardless of where it comes from, from art or from music, not just Christian music, secular music, the world out there, if it's really true, then God is behind it. He has something to, to say about that. And this is, this, is what, this is what's unique about Paul's technique here. He's more concerned with conveying who God is and God's truth than he is in slamming the Athenians and, and, and up front telling them, you're wrong. You're going to hell. And we would, be, we would be right to pay attention to what Paul is doing. Here's what Paul does. He describes God as a creator, not a created being. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Where therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim. He's basically saying, you know what? I, I recognize that you, you, you understand life is a spiritual life. And that seeing that you have taken time to uh, understand, get, to try to gain understanding about your world, let me articulate to you what I know about my God. And then, he, then he goes on, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Skip down to verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul is painting this picture. You've created all these artifacts, these stones and these places that you call sacred so that you could worship a God that you don't know. I'm going to tell you who the God that you don't know really is. And he's not that. He's creator. He created not just this world. He created you. And the simple thing is, if God created you, he's worthy to be worshipped. And so he gives Uh, the description of God as a creator. Then he goes on and says, God is sovereign. Back up to verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And so he's saying here, and of course this is nuanced in the text, he's saying who you are, where you live, where you work, where you play, God is behind all that. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake that every part of your life God is involved in. God put you wherever you are. The Bible would use the word he's sovereign. He's in control. He hasn't wound the the world that he made up and then set people like us in it and let us just go about doing our own thing. God is intimately involved in his creation He's intimately involved in our lives, and he's working within history. Then he goes on in verse 26 through 28 to talk about God as being relational. Actually, 27, I'm going to back up and get a running start at verse 26. This This is my favorite verse in the Bible, one of my favorite verses. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Paul is attuned to the culture. He, he's quoting the poets. This is a poet from uh, the island of Crete, Epimenides, and Paul is doing something very unique. He's quoting you know, the, the people of the day that these philosophers would be intimately familiar with. And I mean, think about that as a technique for coming alongside people who don't believe like you do. He's using their own logic to prove his own point. Again, and this point is is simply this, all truth is God's truth. But more importantly, God is relational. He's not austere, transcendent, like a grandfather or a dad that's that's removed from the people that he should be uh, loving and caring for. God is, is interested, he wants to know you, but more than that, he welcomes you to know him. And this last point that Paul makes is, is, is very important. Verse 30, he makes the point that God, uh, he describes God as challenging. For the times, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this and of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Important verse. And this is Paul's central argument. He's saying this is where the rubber meets the road, because God is not a cosmic sky fairy that you can spout out some mantras to or erect a stone and, and inscribe it you know, with the words, the unknown God. He's not this entity that, uh, that we can bow down to, and he's going to heap blessings on us. That's not who God is. God is not a God who just lets us do anything. He has rules in the, you know, that he calls laws. He has some boundaries by which we have to operate in, and God has expectations for the world that he has made and those who are in it. God expects things from us. And he says what he expects from us in, the, in one of these verses here. And the word that he uses is the word repent. Strong word, but the word really specifically means turn. But what he's offering these people that he's talking to, these Athenians, is that they would change their minds about what they've believed, what they've believed wrongly about who God is and why they are on the earth about God and their own lives. And of course, perhaps to some of you, that sounds offensive. How dare you tell me what I'm supposed to do or that this invisible God is supposed to do? But that's what God is doing here in the scripture through, through Paul. And, and what does he say is the reason why we should repent? He doesn't say it in this verse. He says it in, in verse 32, he says the resurrection of the dead. He implies it in verse 31. God is giving us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is not too bold of a statement. This is not too bold of a statement to say that the very foundation of Christianity is built on this idea of Jesus raising from the dead. It's not too strong of a statement. And the thing is, if Jesus really rose from the dead, which is Paul's argument here, we should listen to him. If a man died, rose from the dead, and then lived not to die again, there's something uniquely special about that man. Paul is saying this, this makes him God. That's what Christianity is about. Jesus is not just another man, another prophet or teacher. He's actually God in the flesh, and that's what the resurrection signifies. There's life after death. We will live somewhere forever. And so here's, here's the summary of everything that I've said. We all have exclusive beliefs. We have things that we, that we hold that are true. And when someone else tells it that, that when, else, when someone challenges us with something that's different from that, I mean, we push against it because we hold those exclusive beliefs to be right. We have absolute <laughs> ideas, all of us, are religious. We have this worldview that we're looking at life, and we're peering through it, and we've made sense. This is these are the answers to the big questions of life. And you know this because, it, I mean, we all divide the world. If you're religious, you divide the world between um, moral and immoral, righteous and unrighteous. And if you're a person that doubts, if you're a skeptic, you divide the world between those who are tolerant and those who are intolerant, those who are enlightened and those who perhaps are ignorant. But we all have exclusive beliefs. And so the question is not whether everyone is religious or whether everyone is exclusive. The question is, which exclusive beliefs will not only help us make peace with God, but also lead to peace in our world? If exclusive religion is the thing that, you know, is the, that's tearing our world apart, which exclusive beliefs will you adhere to? I think that's the question for all of us. Which exclusive beliefs could help make peace in our world? That's why Christians believe in the gospel. The hallmark of Christianity is a gospel that Paul, in his writings in the Bible says, brings together black, white, men, women, people from various backgrounds. He says, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, or Greek. It brings people together who are from various walks of life who have no business being a part of each other. And it brings them together into a commonality, the commonality being God and the good news of Jesus. The God who came from eternity to live in our life, walked our roads, wore our clothes, and died on the cross for our sin, you see, at the heart of Christianity is we believe in a a man who taught us to do good, and loved us to the point that he was willing to die a fitful death for crimes that he did not commit. That's how much God says he loves us. He forgave his enemies to his very last breath. And people that put Jesus Christ at the center of their life, not religion, not just going to church, but Jesus and faith in him at the center of their life. I mean, they're not perfect people. They hold to an exclusive idea of what life in, you know, connected to Jesus might be. But here's what they end up being. They end up being more generous. They end up being more forgiving. They end up being more tolerant. They end up being much less less self-righteous. And so here's a question for today. Which exclusive beliefs are going to make peace with God for you and enable you to be a participant in changing our world? The end of this text is interesting interesting, um, in that Paul uh, offers those of you peeking over the fence into Christianity to do what these people did almost 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 32. He says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. We'll hear you again about this. Interestingly, I don't know how long Paul stood up and talked, perhaps a short amount of time that I've been up here with you today. But his words were so impactful, not because they were his words, but because they came from the person that gave them to him. More particularly, this idea of the resurrection of the dead, that it piqued their interest. If you're a skeptic here, if you're one that doubts, I would encourage you, don't turn your ears off. Definitely don't turn your heart away. Open yourself up to examine what uh, people of faith and what the words of Scripture have said about God and the good news of Jesus. Particularly this idea of resurrecting from the grave. Perhaps it will lead you to more investigation, perhaps it will absolutely change your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that uh, we would hear it, not just in our ears, but it would seep into our hearts, that we would give it room. God, I pray for those here today that uh, may have never looked at words of scripture. I thank you that they're here. I pray that uh, you would help those of us in the room who doubt, those who are skeptical about faith itself, those who are, are skeptical, skeptical about Christianity. Uh, give us all courage, Lord God, to, to be humble with these ideas. Give us greater ability to, uh, to listen. God, I pray for all of us that we would be encouraged in what we actually do believe and that you would help our unbelief. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.